right, could we stand together in honor of God's word? John chapter 13, 34 and 35, here we go. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak today. I pray that there would be a breakthrough today in our understanding, but especially in our identity. Lord, in Jesus' name, show us how to love. Show us how to receive your love and break through in our identities today, I pray, God, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. So we're doing a series in January called Clear Callings. Um, these are the four values of our church. And I'm calling it Clear Callings because we live in a day of confusion. There's tremendous fear. There is tremendous um, distraction. There are many, many voices that are saying different things. And we need to hear very clearly what God wants to do for us and in us, and we need to have a very clear voice to the world. So the first, the first message is called The Call to Love. Point one is love is the evidence of Christianity. So Jesus says this, I'm giving you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. This is how all people are going to know that you are my disciples. Doesn't that seem strange to you? Wouldn't the world know that we're his disciples because we love them? Why would it be our love for each other rather than our love for the world that would convince people that we are his disciples? Well, here's what I've learned. It's harder to love someone that you actually know than a theoretical person that you don't know. I mean, it's just very easy to say, I, you know, I love the broken and I love the homeless and I love, the, I love people in other countries and I love, I love, I love, but I, it's you I can't stand. It's this person right next to me. What's wrong with you? And we're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to, to actually loving one. But I, there's a few things I want to say. One is, is charismatics which we are a charismatic church. We love the Holy Spirit. We love the moving of the Holy Spirit. But oftentimes we get the idea that the, that the evidence of Christianity is God's power, that God's gifts, that spiritual gifts, tongues, interpretation, words of knowledge, healing, and Paul to the church that most is interested in spiritual gift, the ch gifts, the church at Corinth, he says, uh, he says that's not the case. <laughs> He says, spiritual gifts are great and they're important and you should earnestly desire them. But he says, listen, if the motivation for those gifts is something other than love, it's going to produce nothing. I can have the tongues of men and of angels, but if I don't have love, I'm a, a clanging gong or symbol. If I know the word of knowledge and have prophecy and, and can understand all these great mysteries, but if I have love, I don't have love. I am nothing. I can make sacrifices. I can, I can, my body can be burned, but if I'm, it's not out of love, it's nothing. If I could give all my money away to the poor, but if it's not out of love, it's nothing. That that love is the center evidence of Christianity. And frankly, spiritual gifts 
without being done in love, when spiritual gifts are being operated in to get identity for myself or to get uh, uh, to manipulate people, or uh, it, it becomes very confusing. It actually adds to the confusion of our day. We need the power of God, but it has to be motivated by the love of God because God's evidence for Christianity is his love in and through us. So we all must choose between love or not being a Christian. Listen to 1 John 2, 9 through 11. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Years ago now, uh, a young woman got what we thought gloriously saved in the church. She went through uh, some deliverance stuff, and, and, but she was in. I mean, in church, every time the doors were open, in, hands up in worship, just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And uh, she's a very broken woman, like all of us are broken. And um, finally, the issue came up about her ex-husband and, and the need she had to forgive her ex-husband. And so we meet together and she's coming up against this block and I'm like, you, you need to forgive him. You, you need to let go of this. And she became, became very offended. And uh, she, she, she wanted to, to treat unforgiveness. She's like, you don't know how I got hurt. You don't know how I've been broken. I will never forgive him. I will never let go of this. And she, what she wanted to do, she wanted to treat forgiveness like it was like a non-essential. Like, like there are essentials in Christianity, I believe in Jesus, but, but this is like a non-essential and I can, I can hold on to my right to hate my ex. And uh, so she left the meeting, she was not happy in the meeting, and then I hear through the grapevine that she says I was mean to her in the meeting, and she stopped coming to the church, and so it turns out that if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to have to forgive. Because it's the definition. This is the definition of being in the light. If you want to stay in hate and hold on to hate, her issue wasn't with her ex-husband. And her issue wasn't with me. She had an issue with her Savior. Jesus was asking her to forgive. Jesus was commanding her to forgive. And she wanted to hold on to that right. And then you, 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 you live in darkness. You call yourself a Christian. You could call yourself Jesus. You can call yourself whatever you want to. But as long as you give yourself the privilege of hating, you are walking in darkness. So let's talk about this loving a person, loving the person next to you. I often share this bumper sticker at weddings. It says, life is the school, love is the lesson. That all of life, God is trying to teach us how to love and how to, how to receive love and how to give love. And, um, and what I say at weddings is, um, if life is the school 
then marriage is the laboratory inside of that school where you get to choose the person that you go into the laboratory with. Um, isn't that nice? And then you invite God to lock the door, that you're going to be in there in this little laboratory until you learn how to love one person. Because God knows if you can actually love one person, then you can love anyone. So here's what I found out when I got into the laboratory. You know, I went into the laboratory thinking I was this on-fire, Holy Spirit-anointed Christian that was just like, you know, this was just going to be another victory. And I go into the laboratory, and guess what I found out in the laboratory? I'm not that loving. I started seeing things in myself. I saw things in, my, in Alice. I, I, it was just, it was really hard, and it was unexpected. And I learned something about my love. You see, just because you call what you're doing love doesn't mean it's love. Proverbs 31.30 says this, charm is deceitful. Here's why it's deceitful. Charm looks like love. The reason why it's deceitful is because it looks like love, but it actually isn't love. It's not actually thinking about the other person. It's thinking about itself. I am charming because I want something from you. I need your approval. I need your this. I need your that. And I can stir up charm for myself, my own agenda. And so, oftentimes, with a young couple, um, I would be really nice to Alice, and she would say these words. What do you want? And it was, and frankly, it was, she was usually spot on. I wanted to have a physical connection in the bedroom. So all of a sudden, I'm nice. I'm loving. It's called charm. It's not love. And it, it, it's, it goes both ways sometimes. The wife's really nice. It's like, all right, what's going on? What do you want? What do you want to buy? Charm is deceitful. It looks like love, but it's not. People are often really disappointed in marriage counseling. There's, always a, there's usually a lot of energy to set up a marriage counseling appointment. And Joel does most of the marriage counseling here. I do some of it. Um, actually, all of us do some of it. But people are excited about sitting down with the impartial pastor to tell them so that somebody can say, it's not my fault. It's my spouse's fault. Once somebody hears all of the facts, they will agree with me that my spouse needs to change. And unfortunately, that's not how marriage counseling works. <laughs> marriage counseling is, is actually, well, here, here's, here's, how, here's a good way to think about it. There's no command in the Bible, and, and our, our culture is all confused about this. There's no command in the Bible that says, make sure other people love you. Make sure you're treated right. So you're just kind of going around just trying to judge if you're being loved correctly and if other people are loving, are they, are they just charming? Or are they, listen, you're not anybody's judge, and you're not called to figure out how loved you are by other people. The command of God is to, to love others. So people come in, they've got this side, this side, and, and then I, you, sometimes I have to take them separately and just say, listen, um, okay, yeah, I get it, I get it. 99% of this is your husband. 
okay? But God's not speaking to you about any of that 99%. He's speaking to you about this 1%. That's you. Of what you need to work on, what you need to change, what's in your control. Why don't we let God judge your husband? You know the definition of biblical submission. Ducking so that God can punch your husband. <laughs> um, and the husbands are in the other room. And it's 99% her fault. And she, if she wouldn't do this, she wouldn't do that. But you, do, you did do this and you did do that. Yeah, I guess I did. Okay, that's what God wants you to work on. And really, the main thing he wants you to work on is to not judge your spouse. <laughs> and, 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 and start focusing on you being a loving person. Instead of you trying to get somebody else to love you, you focus on how you could be a better person, how you could be a more forgiving, how you can be a more loving person, how you can be more serving, how you can be less entitled, how you can be less about you and more about love. Brutal, just brutal. I just guarantee that no one will come to me in the coming year for marriage counseling, praise God. So here's point two, last point, how to love. The new command, the new command is this, to love one another as I have loved you. First thing that we're struck by is that's the new command. What was the old command? The old command in the law was love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what we found out about that command. It often doesn't work, and here's why. Oftentimes people are hating themselves, and they have so devalued themselves that if they treat other people the way they treat themselves, it's not going to be pretty. And so Jesus says, uh, take, let's take that one off the table. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Instead of other people getting to set a value on you or instead of you setting a value on yourself, I want you to let me set your value. I want my love to determine your value. Turns out that the first clear calling is not to love. It is to be loved. To let Jesus love you. Years ago, I've told this experience. I won't go into it, but I had a dramatic experience that shifted my, my vision, my, my whole approach. And it was, the words from the Lord were, live loved and not afraid, pastor loved and not afraid, parent loved and not afraid. It wasn't about theology, it was about identity. It turns out that fear makes us hide. This morning's one-year Bible was about Adam and Eve in the garden. And after they sin, God comes looking for them as he comes looking for all of us. And he says this, why are you hiding? And here's what Adam said, I was afraid. I was afraid because I'm naked and I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of my nakedness. Sin has, has, has led to shame. Shame causes us to live in fear and hide. And here's what we've learned about the human race. Human race are tremendous hiders. We, we can hide in addiction. We can hide in entertainment. We can hide in uh, 
religion, the, the number one place to hide in church is your own performance. I'm going to prove that I'm good enough. I'm going to prove that I'm, I'm this. And, and it's all fear-driven. I'm afraid that if somebody sees who I actually am, if, if I'm absolutely naked of all the things I clothe myself with to say that I'm worth something, to say that I'm important, to say that I'm lovable, if all that's taken away, I will be rejected. And God says this, I know everything. Our sign says this, come as you are. That means lay everything else down. Everything that might earn you something before God and let him love you. Let me, let me show you what, from the scripture, what, what love is. Here it is, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Sin separates us from God's presence, but it didn't separate us from his love. God, in his plan to redeem mankind, demonstrates his love for you by dying for us on the cross. He made an atoning sacrifice for us so that we could be intimate with him again. God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.21, and this is the first sacrifice in the Bible, an animal was killed and God put these skins that he got from sacrifice and clothed Adam and Eve. All they had to do is take off their fig leaves and to have God clothe you in intimacy. All you have to do is take off whatever you're hiding behind and let him clothe you with Jesus's blood and Jesus's sacrifice. You and I can be naked before God and completely unashamed with absolutely no fear. Why? That's what, that's what love is. Jesus did this for us. Jesus came to restore intimacy with the Father. Everything starts with you letting God love you. And to start living instead. What, what was God saying to me when he said, live loved and not afraid? It's so easy to live, let's go to pastor. Pastor loved, it's so easy to pastor to try to get people to love you. Try to get people to affirm you. Try to get people to say you're a good pastor and I wanna go to this church. God was saying, stop it. I I don't want you to prove anything. I don't want you to live for love. I want you to live from love. I don't want you to live trying to get people to affirm you and love you. I want you to live in the security of my love. So here is the plan of hell. The Bible says that Satan is an accuser. So here's what hell is after. The idea that hell is after you to do some great sin, some adultery or rob a bank or that you're going to do some great thing. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe that's part of it, but not much. What, What hell wants is your identity. And so what, what hell will do is accuse you. And it will say, hell will, will speak, and it can speak very loudly, that you are your worst sin. You are your brokenness. You are, and, and it will try to get you to agree that that is who you are. And, and the insidious thing about this thing is even though God loves you, even though God is for you, God has made us free. 
And you choose what identity you live in. You choose who you agree with. And so the problem is, is if you believe, if you, why, why are the accusations so powerful? Because they're, they're true. You did do that. You, you were broken in that way. You have sinned in that way. You do have a pattern of going back and sinning that way. So it's, it's easy to believe that that's the real you. Hell gets you to agree that that's your identity. And then what hell will say is the fake you is the Jesus you. The fake you is the one that goes to church and worships because you and I know, no one else does, this is the real you. you oh, I've got you. And hell does have you as long as you agree with that that's, that's who I am. He wants you to agree that brokenness is your identity. Why? Because if, if that's your identity, you can never rise above it. If sin is your identity and your, and, and your continual failure in an issue is, if that's your identity and you take that as your identity, you'll never rise above it. You'll add church on so that you can go to heaven one day. But there's no expectation of victory down here because you only rise above what you think you are. So what is God's identity? What if Jesus got to define you? What if he was the only one that got to say who you are? Here's what it says. They overcame him as the accuser. This is Revelation 10, 12, 10 and 11. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So here's, here's, here's the bigger definition. The Bible says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this is who I am. I am loved and I am forgiven because God knew all of this other stuff. He knows all about the sin. He knows all about the failure. But those things, I'm not going to let them define me. I'm going to let his love and his cross define my value and my forgiveness. And this is the place of great victory. This is the place where people don't give you your identity and if people can't give you your identity, they can't take your identity away from you. I am the beloved. And so this great shift came in my heart. I used to be all about doing, 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 and I started being, God, you love me. I'm the beloved. I am the beloved. Not as a theological proposition, but as an identity. I am loved. And all of a sudden, this freedom comes. 1 John 4, 18, perfect love casts out fear. All of a sudden, there's this, this new freedom. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to earn anything. I don't, I, I'm not trying to gain something. I'm in. I'm in because of Jesus. I'm a favored son. My identity is given to me by Jesus. I am in the grace of God. I am in the love of God. This is absolute freedom. And so why don't we all start 2022 instead of focusing on what we're going to do, why don't we focus on the one that loves us, the one that died for us, and let's just break with every other identity that has been assigned to us or that we have assigned to ourselves. Can we do that? Can we start the year that way? Let's pray that right now. Lord, thank you. Thank you that I am the beloved. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for me. Thank you that um, to love the way you want me to love, I must let you love me first. Lord, would you just love on us right now? You said the Holy Spirit was here to pour the love of God into our hearts. Would you pour your love out on sinners right now? 
Lord, why you love us, that is a mystery. The Bible says your love transcends knowledge. We'll never figure it out. But the fact that you do is not my emotion or not what happened yesterday. The fact that you do, the proof that you do is that you died for me on the cross. Would you seal us with that love? Would you seal it deep in our hearts, I pray, God, in Jesus' name. So here's what 1 John 4 says. We have come to know and believe the love God has for us. God is love. He who abides in love abides in God. Okay, notice this. We have come to know. We didn't always know this. We're all on a journey. We're all in process. The first part of it is we've come to know. That word know there is experientially know. It's not know about. It's, it's experience. This is how it all starts. You, ne- you need to have an encounter with the love of God. That's called salvation. You need, you need to embrace Jesus. You need to embrace that you're a sinner. And even though you're a sinner, God still loves you and still died for you. And let him save you. That is knowing the love of God. And then it progresses to not just knowing it by an experience, but believing it. Even when I'm not feeling it, I still believe it. Do you see where, how important this is to our identity? That we believe things In a world where everything's up and down, emotions are up and down, thoughts are all over the place, we need to believe something. Jesus loves me. Jesus is for me. God is for me. We need to believe it. And then eventually, we end up abiding in it. Abide, we we looked at that word. That word means to become at home in. God wants to make your home in his love. He wants love to be your language, love to be where you live, that it's not a struggle to believe your love. You're just, it's your home. You are, you are in his love all the time, and that love flows out of you all of the time. This is God's identity for you. This is absolutely the best version of you. Paul, this is why Paul says he prays. He prays that we would know, being rooted in love, that we would grow up in all the love of God, the height, width, length, depth, and then we'll be filled with the fullness of God. To be filled with the fullness of God is to be absolutely filled with love. So we have to receive God. If you're going to do the new command, it starts with love one another as I have loved you. It starts with letting God love you. Secondly, it requires, it requires dying to self. This is, this is why there's so little genuine love even in the church. Paul says, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here, this whole thing is fueled by Paul's experiential revelation that Jesus loves, not just the whole world, but he loves me and he died for me. And so now, what I'm giving back to him is I am crucified with Christ. This is, this is the second truth that the church has had trouble getting a hold of. Christ died for me, that's one truth. The second truth is this, you died with Christ. The old man died with Christ on that cross. You and I can live dead to ourselves. Dead, what do I mean by dead to myself? Dead to independence. Dead to doing it my own way. Dead to my own charm, my own energy, my own will. Dead to that. And Paul says, because he's loved me so greatly and he died for me, I am embracing this death of the old man and the life I live now. I live in Jesus. 
It, it, is, it is Jesus and me together. I'm going to say it in a couple different ways so we can grab a hold of it. Look at John 17, 23. Jesus is praying. I in them and you in me, that's the Father, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So this is, this is the process. They, when they live in union with me, they're no longer just independent of me, but they're living in union with me, living in my resurrection life, living the old man died, the, 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 the old Adam, the old person died on the cross. And when they recognize that and start living in my resurrection life, they live in union with me, they will become one with each other. And then something stunning is going to happen. Then the world will believe you sent me. And the world will believe, Father, that you love them even as you love me. Pastor Tom, how could, how could God possibly love the world as much as he loves Jesus? Well, the only way it could happen is if God actually is love. That's how much God loves everybody. But they're not going to believe it until they see it. And the way they're going to see it is our love for one another. Us becoming one. I, I, I say this to our leadership team all the time. I say, guys, the church, our church will not become what we preach. They will become what we are. If we love each other, if we've got each other's backs, if we forgive each other and accept each other and, and can enjoy each other, the, the church will eventually become that. But the church will not rise above what we are. We actually have to, sorry, we can't just talk about Christianity. We actually have to be Christians. We have to be Christians. This is the secret to a worldwide harvest. God, send your power. God, help your church love one another. Help your church die to itself so that it can live in your, in your great love. Listen to 1 John 4, 9. It says the same thing a different way. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we may live through him. You and Jesus living life together. This is why his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's the engine of this. This is not us trying to look like Jesus. This is Jesus in us. This is union, intimacy with God. Naked and unashamed because Jesus has chosen us. Jesus is in us. Jesus loves us. Jesus died for us. And now we're living out of that place of love. And then finally, love expresses itself in deeds and words, even when it hurts. The golden text of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave. It doesn't matter if it's hard or inconvenient. If God wants to do something, you need to express it with him. It's not enough to just feel it in your heart. You need to do stuff. So let's talk about forgiveness first. Ephesians 4.32, forgive as Christ forgave you. Be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, forgive one another even as God has forgiven you in Christ. Pastor Tom, I'm just having trouble forgiving. Well, um, it starts with you. As Christ has forgiven you, as you want Christ to forgive you, 
The greatest injustice is not what somebody did to you. It's what you and I did to God. And Jesus forgives us, and now he wants us, in response to that, to forgive other people. It, it really only means to stop being everybody else's judge. And just let God be their judge. And my part is to bring it to the cross and forgive them. I forgive them. God, they're yours to deal with. I forgive them. I forgive them. Forgiveness is what, about what people do. The second one might be harder. It's called accepting one another. Romans 15, 7. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Here's why this one is hard. God, I've forgiven them, but they keep doing it. They, and I know they're going to do it again because it's kind of like who they are. They just keep doing the same thing and I am wearing thin. Okay, maybe it's forgiving somebody. Acceptance is forgiving somebody for who they are. Well, what if they don't change? Honestly, they, 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 they might not. Here's the thing about changing. I'll accept them when they change. Um, you're not their savior. You can't change them. You don't even know if they are changed. Maybe they're changed more than you think they are. You, don't, you have no idea whether they're changing or whether they're not changing. And that's not your job. Our job is to give them this gift of acceptance. So honestly, how, here's how I plan on it. I just plan on people not changing. I'll love them. I, I, I've seen people in church 20, 30 years that don't change at all. But that doesn't mean my call to love and accept them is any less. Pastor Tom, are they even Christians? Only God knows. Only God knows who's a Christian. That's not my part. My part is to love them, to love them, and accept them. And, well, Pastor Tom, they're annoying. Have you ever thought that you might be annoying? <laughs> Thomas Akempis said, if you're having trouble accepting somebody else, think about how much you must bug other people. And then maybe you'll have more grace for him. Love expresses itself in deeds. Give other people forgiveness. Give them your acceptance. Don't hold it back. And then, and then lastly, love speaks. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So how Jesus loves us is he speaks to us. He, he, he cleanses us with his words. It's not just what he says, it's how he says what he says. It's wrapped up in his voice. He is so for us. He so wants the best for us. He so wants us to be with him that his words wash over us and they bring healing and encouragement and cleansing. And it says that he makes the bride spotless. He ma he's making the bride holy. So love others as I have loved you. So God wants us to speak words of life over each other, words of encouragement over each other, words that bring healing and wholeness. Here's what he says just a few verses earlier. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do you notice that grieving the Holy Spirit is tied to what we speak? Here, here's how we speak in our current culture. The way we belittle, the way we, we cut is through humor. 
I was just joking. I was just joking. But the, but the words are already out there. We, we live in this culture of freedom of speech. I'll say whatever I want to say. Guys, there is not freedom of speech in the kingdom. If you want to walk close to God, if you want to walk close to the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to watch what you say. You're going to have to not say everything that you want to say or everything that you could say. You need to die to your right to say that thing and start washing people with your words. Start washing your spouse with your words, encouraging your spouse. You know, it's an amazing thing. The Bible says that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Did you know that when you actually forgive and accept people and start speaking life over them, that they actually want to change? They actually want to become better people? They actually want to rise up? We are, we're charismatic. We're all about revival and awakening. We believe God wants to send revival and awakening, don't we? It's not going to come just by prayer and worship. If we want the Holy Spirit here, we're going to have to speak to one another with more tenderness, more kindness, more encouragement. Could we stand together in Isaiah's great revelation of God where he sees God on his throne and the the seraphim saying, holy, holy, holy. This is all in Isaiah 6. The first thing that occurs to him as he's in the presence of God Here's what he says. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I've, I've spoken too much. I've, I've spoken my own opinion too much. I've, I've just said things that weren't right. And then his second reflection is this. And I live among a people of unclean lips. There are people speaking stuff all around me that are just wrong. And almost every TV show, every movie, every, there are so many models of what not to say. And, not, and how to not say it. And here's God's response to it. God says, your sin, I have made an atonement for your sin. And then he takes a coal from the altar and he puts it on Isaiah's lips to purify what he's going to speak. And then Isaiah says the words, here am I. God says, who will speak for me? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm ready. This is, this is God's plan today. He's not here to condemn us. He's here to cleanse us. He's here, he's here to wash us. He's here, he's here to fuel our identities with his great, great love. Because he wants somebody to go out there that knows how to love people. This is the clear calling.